This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo. Viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. Eric is out this week. I'm joined by Rich Greenfield from Lightshed Ventures and Lightshed Partners. We have a really exciting show today. We're going to talk about Charter and Disney and the WGA strike and antitrust and um, the Google antitrust and all this great stuff about media. I'm really excited for the conversation. Uh, Rich, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's uh it's been a pretty wild September. I will tell you, it, it, September is usually not this interesting. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So, and this is your domain. Like you're 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 in the overlap between traditional and digital media. Is that a fair way to describe your expertise? Yeah, look, I think I've been following the media space now for 30 years. I think my gray hair which you can't see listening to this, but I think it's like we've been looking at this evolution of how technology collides with the media world and how it's being disrupted. And so always thinking about sort of where that puck is going and how new companies are, you know, disrupting the big, you know, legacy companies, which is happening at a faster pace every day. Yeah. So before we talk about this exciting September we've lived through, uh, why don't you give us some background here on what exactly is Lightshed? Because it's a lot of things and some people kind of get confused about what it is. So I've been a media analyst, tech media analyst now for 30 years, started my career at Goldman Sachs back in the mid 90s has always been about getting, you know, sort of buy, sell, hold on media companies. Although, you know, what's a media company? It's always been things like Disney, but now it's Netflix and it's, you know, what used to be called Facebook, now called Meta and Snapchat. You know, the, the world is evolving where all of these industries are converging. I mean, take Instacart. Is it a grocery store or is it, right. you know, an online site? And Amazon is 30 different things every single day. Amazon does more. So, you know, we've always been looking at this converged world. But the, but the goal was how do public market investors, hedge funds, mutual funds, how do they make money buying and selling stocks in the space? That's been what we started Lightshed's history on four years ago, was built around buy, sell, holds on tech media and telecom companies. But I've had a true passion for sort of how early stage startups were impacting the space. And I think it was the edge in our research was thinking about where that puck was going. And so I've been an active angel investor probably for 15 years. And, you know, literally it was one of the things that got me most interested in podcasting. I was one of the original investors in Wondery. And, you know, I've just been fascinated by how new companies are impacting the big public companies. And so uh, three years ago, we launched Lightshed Ventures, which is an $80 million tech, media, and telecom early stage venture fund. And so you can think about us as we are advice, recommendations for institutional investors on the tech, media, and telecom research side. And then we are investors in early stage, privately held companies in that same sector. And notable private companies are Cameo, a bunch of other sort of new media companies. Yeah, like, I mean, Cameo was a later stage. I would think, you know, when you're thinking about us, you know, big high profile bets that we've made, I mean, you've probably seen Telly, which is the world's first free television. We're the right. largest investor and co led their last round. We're huge believers in sort of, you know, how advertising connected TV advertising can really be powerful and be transformative to the television space. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and you're also a podcaster, so you, you, we need to get a plug in. If you're listening to this, you probably want to listen to Rich's podcast. What's the podcast called? It's the Light Shed Podcast. We are remember. a private podcast, but you can certainly email us. We're super accessible or hit me on Twitter, Rich Light Shed. We're happy to have more industry listeners to what the content we're creating every week. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm a subscriber to your website. I don't think I've gotten the, the secret link to the podcast, but you'll have to hook me we up. We can do that. We can do that, Ari. Okay, why was September so exciting? Uh, it felt like it was like this giant release of energy that had been building up for a couple of years with AI and with uh, you know rights management and sports moving to digital and all this stuff happening all at once. 
I think one of the biggest things to think about is we've been talking about the bundle collapsing. And I started a hashtag you probably remember years ago called Good Luck Bundle. And we got attacked for it. You know, legacy media companies didn't like it. We said that, you know, sort of this online, the rise of Netflix, the rise of Prime Video, all of this was going to be very disruptive to the, you know, basically an accelerant to cord cutting. And it's obviously proven out. There's no doubt about it. Nobody questions the hashtag anymore. I think it's generally accepted. But what happened a couple of weeks ago is fascinating, where Disney essentially went back to the future. And so, you know, we always think of like direct to consumer as truly direct to consumer. But now Disney Plus is now included for charter video subscribers. So, you know, upwards of 10 million charter subscribers, whether they want Disney Plus or not, <laughs> are getting free access, you know, free. And I say free in air quotes for your listeners, because my guess is their bill is going to go up for that free, you know, access right. to Disney Plus. And it's this age old thing of the bundle gets fatter and fatter and the price goes up. But it just shows you how. The outside world, that direct-to-consumer is really hard. Like, you grew up in the digital world, Art. Like, you understand sure. how hard consumer marketing is. I mean, I'm sure that's sort of so much of what you talk about all the time. But, like, this is a hard business. Like, you know, think about the cable bundle. You signed up. Nobody canceled because, you know, like, you may not have liked one channel or you might have not even have liked what was on television. But, like, nobody canceled their Comcast and then re-signed up a week later. Like, None of that happened. It was too complicated. Someone had to come to your house and drill holes in the wall and plug in wires. And then you got stuck on hold for four hours when you were trying to cancel and take a day off from work. Like there was so much friction. I can cancel my Max or Peacock subscription in 15 seconds or less. Yeah. And and the, because of the nature of the hit-driven subscriptions, uh, people can sign up when Ashoka comes out and then turn it off for six months. So by bundling with things that are harder to turn off, it becomes a little bit stickier maybe. But it also becomes sort of once you move into that wholesale model, you're sort of leaving the direct-to-consumer world because there's no way you're going to focus. You're not going to spend as much on customer acquisition that, than you used to if most of your subscribers are coming from wholesale. Like it's just right. human nature, right? Like I can't, I can't prove it yet. I am just projecting out over the next two years and going, well, if most of the sub base, if every, you know, if every distributor follows what Charter did and whether that's Comcast, whether that's Altice, whoever it is, the desire to actually spend on customer acquisition just feels like it's going to go down materially. Well, you're rebundling. Instead of paying $160 a month to the cable company for for 500 channels, you pay them like $80 for broadband and you get another $80 worth of bundles of, uh, of apps that basically give you most of what you had before. That sort of what you just described, I think, would have been great. Meaning if I could get a bundle on top of my charter broadband of Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and Hulu and Disney Plus. That would be great. But what we're actually saying is actually a little bit different. It's saying you've got to keep the existing bundle. So you've got to keep your CBS, ABC, ESPN, Food Network, and we're going to throw in Disney Plus on right. top of it. They did it on the it cable side. right? Correct. And so, you know, David Zaslav's talked pretty openly, like we need to have a new bundle of all of these streaming services. And I think what he's talking about is like, could you have Max with Hulu, with Paramount Plus? That's not what this is. What we're basically seeing is, look, we have this legacy bundle. It's gotten pretty unattractive, right? Because unless you're a sports fan, most of the high profile content, like I'm sure your listeners yeah. are not watching a lot of linear television at nine o'clock on a Tuesday, other than if there's a sporting event that they really care about. They're watching Netflix, they're watching Paramount Plus or Peacock or whatever. And so this is basically saying, hey, we're going to put the stuff you're watching back in, but it's obviously going to cost us more. We're going to charge a wholesale rate right. to the distributor and the bill probably goes up. And so uh, but isn't this sort of a transitionary thing? Because um, one of the interesting things is that a service like Disney Plus has a lot of benefits over the Disney channels. You know, you can watch on demand more easily. There are some exclusives. So the cable companies kind of have to bundle it or else they're even adding more pressure to the cord cutters. But over time, I think it still ends up where it was ending up, which is broadband plus a bunch of services. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I would just step back 
what I think everyone sort of misses or I, I feel like is often missed, I hear a lot of people say bundles make life easier. Consumers just want a bundle. I don't know. People seem pretty good, especially younger consumers, but I actually think all consumers like you're pretty empowered. Like you can add an app on your iPhone, delete an app on your iPhone. Like it's gotten pretty easy. It's not again. Yeah. You don't have the call up customer service, wait on hold for hours. Like it's gotten simple enough where I think consumers like the ability to sign up and cancel at will. They're not stuck in sort of cross subsidized, you know, bundles of content. They don't need to be subscribers for the full year. Like, I mean, I know everyone thinks bundles are the be all end all and that will save everything. I'm not as convinced it's what the consumer really wants. I think right. it's the business model. If you've grown up as a media company, legacy media company over the last, you know, three decades, this is what you know. And it's sort of like trying to teach a legacy media company guerrilla warfare to attract and retain subscribers. That's really hard. And I think this is the the proof point that they weren't set up to compete like this. So, so wait, I want to get a little more detail on this because my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, because you followed it a lot closer than I did, was that Disney wanted a more kind of a standard renewal um, of their bundle and the charter didn't want that. And the compromise position was first Disney removed a bunch of channels. So the bundle got slimmer uh, from from the perspective of the cable provider. They didn't have as many garbage channels. No one ever wanted to watch. Yep. And then secondly, they got this Disney Plus bundle. And then third, there's some sort of vague promise that when ESPN finally gets off its ass and has a streaming app, that they're going to get it. Is that, that's, is that accurate? I think, I, I think that's all factually <laughs> true, but let me just connect the little dots for you. Okay. So one, the channels that came off probably were costing the distributor, I don't know, a buck fifty a month. Right. Disney Plus is probably costing them three to four dollars a month. On top of that, the remaining channels, you know, not the one fifty savings from the drop channels, but all the other channels went up in cost too. And so yeah, there's more stuff that people want in the bundle like Disney Plus, but the cost charter is paying Disney more than 10% more than they were last year, even right. though there's fewer subscribers year over year. So Disney won this negotiation. I mean, look, Charter got more value, but let's just be very clear. Charter went into this. It's sort of like the writer's strike. If we sort of, I know right. we're going to get to that. We're going to get that. Like both sides want something. So Charter wanted free access to Disney Plus. Disney didn't want to do this at all. Right. Disney got a pretty fair wholesale rate, considering there's also advertising on this. So I think this is, you know, Disney did something they may not have wanted to do at the beginning, although maybe they did because direct-to-consumer is too hard and they really do want to get to a wholesale model. But Charter had to pay for it rather than getting it for free. And so you can see wins on both sides. But I, I think I've the more I've learned, the more I've seen this as, as sort of a Disney victory more than a Charter victory. And what's up with ESPN? So ESPN doesn't have an app. They have an app that only lets you watch ESPN with your cable. Uh, log in. They don't have an independent app. Um, yeah, but I think I, no one's going to do it. Like, I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> no one's going to do what? No one's going to do. Consumers aren't going to sign up for the ESPN app. I certainly would if I could get get rid of like you know YouTube TV and stop watching sports on uh, on uh, normal television. Well, hold on. I've been asking this question to everyone, so I'm going to ask it to you. Yeah, I want to know what does the consumer look like. I want to understand who this consumer, this mythical consumer, is that is excited to pay $25 or $30 a month for ESPN, like the actual ESPN, yep. college football, Monday Night Football, and big, all of that, but doesn't need ABC, CBS, Fox. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Like, doesn't need Fox Sports, doesn't need USA Network, doesn't need TBS or TNT. Like, I'm struggling to understand. It seems like if you're a diehard sports fan or even a reasonable sports fan, it's either big bundle or nothing. Like, I don't, this it just it, I don't understand this like idea of trying to piece together. It doesn't seem like a great experience, maybe for a really casual sports fan. But my guess is you're not a really casual sports fan who wants to watch like a week's worth of football games. Yeah, you know uh, you're probably right. Uh, the the issue is that um, a service, an AVOD service like YouTube TV, is effectively ninety nine percent sports, uh, and it's overpriced for that. Um, so. The consumer desire is to solve that problem, but an ESPN app won't do that on its own. The, the problem is there is no easy way to do that because 
sports is getting more and more scattered because everyone is trying to grab a little bit of sports because they see it as the only sort of quote yeah. unquote must have. And what people are missing is that the reason Netflix spends $17 billion on content, non-sports, right? Like they don't right. actually do linear sports. They do sports docs, but not linear sports. But the reason they do that is because you need in a D2C world, you need a piece of content every single day to excite people. Like you need to wow people every day. Whereas the media world that you and I grew up on, they're sort of used to, you know, a few big shows a year, sometimes even one or two big shows a year that you watch 30 minutes to 40 minutes a week. Uh, Well, I'm a Jets fan, so hopefully I'll be able to save some money by cutting off all these services and never watching sports again. You excited to see Taylor? I was going to ask you about Taylor. So let's do the media the media angle on Taylor because uh, I'm a huge Swifty, first of all. Let's just say that. So uh, the media angle on Taylor, here's what people are saying. Uh, just in the in, I'm on the inside on this stuff, which is um, this this may or may not be a PR stunt, this whole relationship. But even if it's not, um, they are talking about making Super Bowl commercials together and just hyping this romance all the way through the end of the season and just reaping in the bucks. What do you think? Well, I, the only thing I would say is I don't think Taylor Swift is in any need of increased publicity or monetization. I think she's doing it far better. I just think what's funny, I think the funniest part of the week has been sort of this like, you know, online of like, you know, Taylor put Kelsey on the map. Like, yeah, that's just, pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, it's just like he's a Super Bowl ring holder. Like, it's just that whole narrative is awesome. Like, just yeah. awesome. I, I hope the best for them. They seem like a very nice couple. Uh, all right, let's move on <laughs> to the writer's strike. Um, yeah. So um, I think we've all been following this as of this recording. It is they've come to an agreement. I'm not sure if they've actually signed, but they've come to an agreement. Mm-hmm. Um so what does this tell us about the bigger picture? Is this about AI or is this about streaming or both? Look, I think it's sort of the the writers. I mean, I don't know why it took five months to get this. It this right. seems like if they had all sat down and started really negotiating two months ago. And I mean, the writers didn't get what they asked for. They certainly got more than the studios. But my guess is if they had actively engaged and really you know pushed hard for negotiations, they would have gotten here months ago. Like it doesn't seem like this was so crazy. But I look, I think at the end of the day, what this is is the writers trying, you know, a little bit socialist, like right, like trying to get, you know, minimum number of writers on a project, like right. trying to ensure work. Like it's sort of somewhat of a denial of the fact that the business is changing. You know, when you and I grew up, it was 22 episodes. They ran from September through May. Like, the, you know, they're on demand, like you just there was DVD sales after the season ended, like the whole business is different. So I think part of this friction, they didn't deal with this during COVID. They should have, but nobody wanted to go on strike during the middle of COVID the last time negotiations came up. And so I think in some ways this has been boiling for years. Why it took five months, I don't know. At the end of the day, look, it makes making content a bit more expensive for the studios I think the studios have a lot bigger problems right now on the streaming side than the cost of their writers going up a little bit. Um, I don't think that's the big issue. I think there's too much content being created by these studios relative to their success in D2C customer acquisition. And so you're going to see big changes, consolidation over the next few years. On the AI side, I mean, just the only thing I'd say, Ari, this contract, because it's backdated, is already going to be six months old by the time it's actually ratified. Two and a half years left. My guess is in two and a half years, we're going to know a heck of a lot more about the AI implications on this sector. And I, and I would just say to your listeners, think of this as just drawing a line in the sand, the beginning of an evolutionary process of how AI is going to impact. This contract alone, I think, is relatively meaningless. Okay. So there were a couple of hot takes people would have, and I want your, your reaction to the hot takes. Hot take number one was the studios were actually thrilled to just take a break from the constant cost of production. There's so much content that having five months of no content was like almost like going on a going on a spa vacation, losing some weight. Uh, you know, it's convenient narrative. And I think maybe for a couple of studios, a couple of months might have not actually been such a bad thing. Meaning Warner Brothers Paramount getting into the five month territory. And remember, it's more yeah. than five months because it's not even papered yet. Like the SAG isn't done. That's going to start now. Best case is two weeks to sign, four weeks to actually get it ratified. Like you're talking six to seven, by the time productions restart, probably a seven month delay in Hollywood. 
that is screwing up next year. Like there is no doubt the movie schedule for next year is now a mess. Like things that were supposed to come out next summer are not going to come out next summer. So I, I just think that's a convenient narrative at the end of the day. In your when you're in the business, I mean, think about it. Less content on linear TV means more cord cutting, less stuff on linear TV. Yep. Less content for your streaming service means greater churn and like harder to raise pricing. Like I, I think this has gone on too long for that narrative to hold water. Okay. Okay. The second hot take, I think this is Barry Diller's hot take, which was okay. that um that the studios shouldn't be united, that is the old guard should treat Netflix and streaming only companies as the enemy and be able to negotiate separately. Am I mischaracterizing Barry, Mr. Diller's point of view? I didn't listen to Barry's comment specifically, <laughs> but I would just say the entire industry is moving towards the internet. You know, I think, you know, you can try to, it, it's always convenient when you try to fight technology, but I think, you know, Bezos has that great quote, you know, like if you lean against, if you lean away from the future, the future is going to punch you in the face or it's something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. His, okay. His quote I just think like, good luck with that. I mean, at the end of the day, all of these studios, because again, remember, Disney is taking their best content. They don't put it on ABC anymore. Yeah. They don't put it on Disney Channel anymore. They put Mandalorian on Disney Plus. And so this is really the same. It, all of these companies are really facing the same issues of how does talent get compensated when it isn't about weekend box office and it's not about how many people tuned in at eight o'clock on a Thursday. Okay, so uh, this uh, this podcast is mostly listened to by ad tech people. So I guess if we zoom out and we think about the connected TV world and the streaming world, um, I saw this presentation yesterday at Programmatic I.O. where the uh, insider intelligence people were saying that connected TV had a huge growth for uh, during COVID, but now it's going to grow like in the high teens in terms of viewership for the next couple of years. But there's a lot more advertising potential. How do you see the market for for advertising in this world? Is it is it stable or is it you know entering a growth phase? I mean, the biggest issue in connected TV has been supply. I mean, yep. it wasn't that long ago, right? That you basically had Hulu. I mean, I get I should say you've always had YouTube, and I think YouTube is sort of the hidden sleeping, not even sleeping, the the, the non visible giant in this space is that. Yep. You know, over half of YouTube viewership is on a connected TV. They're massive. And so that was obviously a huge piece of it. But if you, you know, I think very often ad buyers, probably people that listen to this podcast, there's still been this odd segmentation of premium versus UGC. And even though I think a lot of YouTube is actually pretty premium content, at least to my kids and people I know, like it's sort yeah. of hard to make that distinction anymore, especially when you see something like Coco Melon on YouTube as well as on Netflix. Like what's the definition of premium versus non-premium? It's sort of arbitrary at this point, but leave that yeah, aside. If you think about it, you basically had Hulu and Roku, and, and then you had, you know, sort of the the pure AVODs like Tubi and Pluto, but you didn't have a lot of alternatives. Now you've got Netflix, you've got Peacock, you've got Paramount Plus, you've got Max. Like they're still even Disney Plus, they're still pretty nascent though, Ari. Like there is not a lot of ad yeah. dollars because most people on these platforms outside of Hulu are still on the ad-free side of these platforms. And I think how these companies can sort of incentivize, and you see all of them raising price of ad-free, keeping a low price on the ad-supported tier. They're truly trying to encourage more and more people onto these ad tiers. They have all these ad buyers on legacy TV. They need to move them to CTV, but they need to get more impressions essentially they need to build the impression base because yep. they don't have it today yeah so netflix and and amazon who we'll talk about in a minute and max all adding ads is going to have a big impact on the dynamics of the market increased supply it'll be pretty long term supply. though long term but slow. not short term like it doesn't it doesn't change overnight like you know think about how oh. big that base is 70 million people hadn't or Call it 67 million people had Netflix before they launched in the US, before they launched an advertising tier. It takes a lot of time to convert and have yeah. that, you know, that base be truly meaningful. All right. So I found on your blog this fun blog post that said the title was Lena Khan does not understand the media business. Did you write that? I did. Or one of your colleagues. I did. Yeah. I did. So what, explain that, please. Well, because, you know, she, she weighed in with all, she did this whole, she did a podcast, actually. Um, we love podcasts. I should have her on. I don't know if she'd join. 
<laughs> I don't know. But I mean, she basically had this podcast where she sort of attacked that like quality in Hollywood had gone down because of consolidation. I don't know. I mean, I think there's Maybe. more content today than there's ever been before. And I, I would argue in terms of like quality content, like, I don't know. I mean, first of all, who defines what quality is? I mean, we just had yep. this discussion with YouTube, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, go back. Was was MTV content back in the day quality? Was survive like a survivor? Everyone loves Raymond. I, I mean, was was Joe Millionaire quality? Like, I yeah. you know, we, we could go back through, but like, I would argue that the amount of overall content for the consumer and the price value, like, you don't have to sign up for the big bundle. I can just sign up for Disney Plus or just sign up for Netflix and sign up and cancel. Like, I think actually all of this has been incredibly good for the consumer. And, you know, then she gets into this whole discussion of like, oh, well, you know, there aren't the same metrics today that there used to be like box office and viewership. And it also to me that that's where really I thought her misunderstanding or lack of understanding yeah. of the sector really showed, because if you're Netflix, it's not just about how many people watch a show. And I think the actors got this wrong too. In the, in the W, sorry, not the actors, the writers got this wrong. Like they fought for total viewership data. That's not actually what defines success on Netflix or Disney Plus or Hulu. It's more complicated, right? Because a show in subscription, it's all about how does viewership relate to retention relative to the cost of the programming? It's not just about, how many tickets were sold that night or how much viewership and therefore advertising was sold. It's a much more nuanced, complicated equation. And I don't think Lena Khan nor the Writers Guild truly understand that. Is Lena looking at any traditional media companies for action? Because she seems to be very focused on the tech giants. Well, it certainly limits you would know, the ability. I guess. It certainly limits the ability for the tech giants to do acquisitions of legacy yeah, media. Right. Now, the Amazon MGM would probably be the last one of that kind. Correct. And I mean, even that they didn't really like, they tried, at least for, yeah. they attempted for a moment to fight it, even though it seems ridiculous. But I mean, I don't think anyone believes, you know, I don't think Apple, you know, even if Apple, which I don't think they do, but even if Apple wanted to buy Disney, which I crap on every time anyone brings it up, regulatory wise, I don't think there's any chance. Forget about this country, even overseas. Like, I just don't think it's happening. And so, but the reality is these companies are facing a true existential threat. Their business model is being completely upended by technology, and they're going to need consolidation to stay alive. And so to the extent that they can't consolidate, like to the extent that NBC Universal couldn't merge with WBD, that's just bad for the media industry. And I fear that concern about her views stops transactions that should happen. Sure. Uh, what about... Out um Netflix Disney, would that ever happen? I, I mean, certainly We're not. Just having with, fun here. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, look, it, it's funny you mention it because, and again, it was under a prior administration, right? But you know, Disney buying Fox, people thought would actually be fairly difficult. You were merging, you know, Disney was the largest studio in the world, and they were buying another studio to get to massive market share. The funny thing is. Now, Disney Studio hasn't had a hit, and I can't even remember how long, like, you know, other than Avatar, which was acquired from Fox, but like, there's been Disney's content is underperforming after underperforming. And it sort of just shows you that there is a healthy enough amount of competition that consolidation really shouldn't be the industry. You know, that there's, there is so much competition in the video space that, you know, their fears of consolidation have been very misguided. Disney, Netflix, I mean, look, I don't know whether regulatory wise, it's probably pretty hard. I think the reality, though, is Netflix is not going to buy. They don't want to own cable networks. They don't want to own linear right. TV networks. Like, you know, Iger has even talked about wanting to sell the non ESPN cable networks. I think it's really hard. I mean, these are assets that are in secular decline now. You got to run them for cash. I don't think Netflix wants run it for cash assets. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely the cable would be an asset they wouldn't want. Um, I've also heard Netflix, Spotify would make a lot of sense, which I actually do think would make some sense. I mean, look, you could, I mean, there, there's very different cost structures, right? Like when you buy music, you know, you're basically, or when you license music, it's all a rev share, right? So you're sharing most right. of that revenue back. When you buy entertainment or video content, 
you're buying it at a fixed price and there is no you know revenue share and so the the economic models are totally different which makes that i think difficult but it's mm-hmm. worth pointing out there's this guy Ted Sarandos who is co-CEO of Netflix that also happens to be on the board of of Spotify if you think about Spotify's challenge, it's having less and less of each dollar go to the go to the uh, recording studios, um, or what? Sure. The, Which is uh, why they're in the podcast labels, business. Right? So that's why they're in the podcast business. So you, you, if you squint right, you say, well, they're trying to become more like Netflix, and Netflix is going to run out of growth at some point. So maybe that makes sense. Anyway, this is just the fun kind of cocktail speculation that uh, we get to do on this podcast. Um, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the news of the week. This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and fast services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. All right, we're back. So we've got antitrust to start with. Um, Have you been following the Google antitrust trial? We have been following all of these antitrust attacks. I mean, it seems like every day there's a new, you know, Lita Khan, you know, it's funny. No matter how many losses she takes, she doesn't seem to be sort of scared off by attacking yet another company. Yeah, we still have Amazon to talk about. Uh, let's talk about Google first. Um, so I think I don't remember if we talked about it in last week's pod, but first there was a document that was revealed, a Google Doc that showed that senior executives at the search side of Google were moving the dials around on the way search worked to try to make the quarter. We did. I think we did talk about that last quarter, but I'd love to hear your reaction. And then the same. Again, my favorite thing that happened this week was uh, testimony in the trial from Apple that basically said um, that they use Bing as kind of a counterparty to get the most money out of Google. And I think uh, maybe not exact quote, but Eddie Q said, Apple makes more money on Bing existing than Bing does. That just gave me a nice well, chuckle. Well, but because it's, it's, it's literally talking about competition, right? Like having competition drives up the price and makes it more valuable. Does Apple use Google because it's the best search engine or not? Probably a little bit. <laughs> you know, probably a little bit. But um, I, you have to wonder if it wasn't 90-10 in market share, if it was 60-40, would the, world, would the whole thing be different? But the fact that it's 90-10 and that consumers really do prefer Google makes it a kind of hard argument to say that it's monopolistic. I mean, do you know anyone who uses Bing? Some Microsoft employees I know. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, the, the benefits of scale and the flywheel of scale, you, we see it all over the place, right? Like Netflix is the only service people really spend time with. You know, you know, you can go into YouTube. Like, let's just say YouTube and Netflix are the only two streaming services people spend a tremendous amount of time streaming. I think it's like Google. What's the search engine everyone uses? They use Google. Like there's just sort of this sort of flywheel that once it starts spinning on the internet, it's very hard to break in. And I I don't know. I mean, look, we'll see. People obviously are very optimistic or there's people that are optimistic about what OpenAI integrated and ChatGPT integrated into Bing can do. I don't think we've seen any meaningful shift in market share to date. And, you know, Brandon Ross, one of my partners at Lightshed, you know, he likes Bard. He goes, he thinks Bard's been better. And you just saw what Mark Zuckerberg's doing with Meta with AI this week. Like, who? it's very hard to tell whether any of this means anything to search market share at this point. Yeah, it's one of the situations where the technology is actually kind of interesting right now for the first time in 10 years around search. And now the government's jumping in and trying to make an antitrust case, which they probably, if, if the, in the unlikely event that they are successful in this case, they may have remedies that don't make any sense for the consumers. Look, the government could have stopped Facebook when it was called that back in the day, right? They could have stopped them from buying Instagram. They could have stopped them from buying WhatsApp. Like there's many things they could have done looking backwards, unraveling the onion. It's really hard. We'll see. I mean, I'm skeptical that that any of this really, not to mention the government may change over the course of the next 12 months, which is a whole nother angle to all of this. But, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of skeptical that we're going to see wholesale breakups of these companies. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think they're even asking for the breakup in the search case. Um, but in the um, so another antitrust case, is, uh, the government is suing the government, along with 17 attorneys general, are suing Amazon for antitrust activities, mostly around the ways they require third party merchants to advertise or to use their shipping services and things like that. I'm not an expert in this area, but I would say that my Twitter feed is filled with, I would call it ridicule for this case. Um, like the conventional wisdom is that this case is idiotic, uh, that it's um, that Amazon is by no means a, a monopolist when it comes to commerce because it's such a big space. What's your take? I mean, do we think that Microsoft is like somehow cornering the market on video game publishing, that them buying Activision was somehow horrible for the video game space? And I mean, especially when these active yeah, that one made games, no sense. Unfortunately, I think we have to look at the, what's been happening over the last two to three years in a larger context, right? You, we can't look at any one of these cases. They all seem relatively absurd and sort of, it feels like the focus is wrong. And I think that's what's you know upsetting from our standpoint is that all of this is adding fear. It's hurting valuations of these companies because it's you know it's hurting the potential people are less interested in doing M&A if they're worried about every time they try to do something they get sued and they have to then yeah. go to court and fight to block the government from blocking the deal like that's just not from an industry standpoint that hurts valuations multiples throughout the sector and that's really the shame of, of all of this but well, M and A is one thing. M and A has always been scrutinized. You know, even the smallest deal, you have to. There's always a chance it's not going to go through. But this is an M and A. This is this is like vertical integration, where the marketplace starts an advertising right. business, and suddenly it's considered coercive. Uh, what are the rules? Well, but it's you know, also what funny. percentage market share do you have to have? But but just look at what just happened, right? Like, I think you would probably agree with me. I mean, I'll, I'll ask you a question. Do you think yeah. Meta could buy OpenAI tomorrow? No, I don't think Meta can buy anything without okay. being- No, no, no. So, so stop right there. Anti- yeah. So stop right there. Meta cannot buy OpenAI. Yet, Meta can spend billions of dollars and launch yesterday a massive AI initiative, maybe even, and it, looks, it looked as good, if not better than MidJourney at no cost to the consumer and seems disruptive to MidJourney. They're now integrating you know, OpenAI chatbots into all of their different products no cost to the consumer, no subscription to ChatGPT required, legal to innovate. Like it just, it, it's very hard with these companies have such massive resources and such huge network effects. They're incredibly well positioned to build out technology that is helpful to consumers' lives with or without M&A. And I think the government just doesn't know how to deal with that. I think anyone looking at the space can see examples where it doesn't seem fair in some way, like Apple charging 30% and requiring you to use their their store doesn't really seem fair. But antitrust may not be the right tool. It's the only tool the government seems to have, but it doesn't seem like it's the right tool. It seems like the right tool is passing the laws, you know, having, having some regulations, uh, have the FCC have some regulations around this stuff. Look, I, I think it's actually, there, there's interesting, you know, like, I never really understood why the Epic case is the one that got really the focus in the Apple situation, because to me, like there's a better comparison. Like, look at Spotify. They charge Apple. Apple charges Spotify 30 percent. But the exact same product where Apple has their own music service. Yeah, obviously there isn't like those are like where I feel like it's so blatantly obvious in terms of sort of where you're competing in the exact same business when you're offering services that. Apple doesn't, and it's just purely they're providing their platform and they don't have an existing service that they're quote unquote favoring. I just think that's a lot harder to your point, Ari. I think that's a lot harder of an antitrust case. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, other Amazon news. Um, so so uh, I love this. Big they, news. Amazon's Big adding news. ads. To, <laughs> they're adding ads to Prime. But unlike Netflix, they're not creating a lower price tier. They're creating a higher price tier to not see the ads. That's just genius. I, l- I would love to read the six-page memo that came up with that one. <laughs> but this seems like a big deal because they also are claiming in a different article that was uh, written by Insider, um, they got a, their hands on a pitch for the Prime Video ads. A lot of good info in that article. Um, but one thing was that they claim 115 million U.S. viewers for Prime. A reach of 115 million. I, I, you know. 
what that defines, you know, the daily active engagement, my suspicion yeah. is a very small fraction of that 115. But look, this whole announcement over the last week of ads coming to Amazon Prime Video for the vast majority, because very few people are going to opt to the higher ad free tier, I suspect, because it's not that heavily of a used service relative to something like Netflix. This has been a long time coming. Amazon has incredible data. They needed to build up enough scale in advertising. I think getting things like NFL programming like this, there's been this has been in the works for years. And I think, you know, as you look at sort of their ad, their ad business has obviously grown dramatically. You mean, I'm talking within the actual shopping service of Amazon. I think this was a natural next step of how do you create meaningful video advertising inventory and then leverage all of your intent data, shopping cart data to target. Because again, the, the reason why Instagram ads are so good is that they make ads feel like content. I think that's the potential right. Amazon has. I, there's no proof of it yet when you watch like Thursday Night Football, but in success over time, as you get enough scale to that business, Amazon should have a very unique ability to target ads very differently than you're used to within the television world. They also can do conversion attribution, both online and offline through Whole Foods. Um, they have just Correct. enormous opportunities ahead of them. You know, I think Prime's probably a laggard in terms of viewership and content versus some of the other guys. But they Well, I was looking at that presentation. Well, you look at that leaked presentation and the shows that they highlight, and it's just, they still, I mean, for a company that spends six, seven billion dollars a year on content, it's sort of shocking that there hasn't been enough cultural moments coming yeah. out of prime video it the just boys. hasn't yeah but i mean like the, i mean it. show me like what is you know the lord of the rings thing didn't work like just show me like what has really broken out you know mrs meisel's like a tiny little show in the scheme of things like where are the big hits for the amount of money they're spending and i think in some ways ari that's why they've pivoted harder and harder over to sports is that their entertainment yeah. content hasn't worked all that well. Okay, we're going to introduce a new segment to this podcast. It's going to be it. The segment is called "Explain That Press Release." Um, so I have a press release that you and I are going to try to figure out what it means. Okay, you up for this? Sure. Okay. I'm a little nervous. Headline: Yahoo Advertising partners with Freewheel and Magnite to boost CTV capabilities. Okay, that seems good so far. I'll breeze through Yahoo has entered into a strategic agreement with Comcast-owned Freewheel and Magnite for the partnership aims to enable direct server-to-server connections with direct-to-publisher offerings Yahoo Backstage. Now, that sentence, I could diagram that sentence, but I'm having a bit of a hard time. Um, do you know what Yahoo Backstage is? I don't, so I'm not okay. going to make it up. I don't know, but I will say that. But I, but I, but I would just say that you know, overall, obviously, Apollo now owns Yahoo and AOL. Yep, they are clearly investing. I think probably one of the biggest areas of investment is on the sports side. And if you think about Yahoo, you know, Yahoo Sports and you know, Yahoo Fantasy Sports is probably one of the outside of email. I think is one of the two reasons sort of Yahoo exists, right? Um, still or is still as sticky as it is, despite how old it is. Yeah, and finance, and so. The ability to sort of lean into those categories where you have highly engaged audiences and to figure out how you create partnerships that leverage that data seems like a very lot. And they brought in Ryan Spoon, who's a very well-known sports digital media executive, used to work at ESPN for years. Like they're hiring good people. Um, and I think it's a really interesting story to watch for 2024. Like I don't, I don't know how all the pieces fit together. But I do think you want to keep your eye on Yahoo simply because despite everything they've been through, they still have a crazy amount of engaged traffic on people. Because, again, email addresses and fantasy sports and even finance are just very sticky categories once you set them up. Look, Rich, I don't disagree with you at all. I'm just trying to understand what this press release is. I have is. no idea what that press release is. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. I think I can get to it. A couple paragraphs later, it says – Yahoo Backstage is a direct path to curated premium publisher inventory available exclusively through the Yahoo DSP. I think I know what this is. I think Yahoo Backstage is what they what the remnants of the Yahoo SSP that after they shut down the Yahoo SSP, they renamed it Backstage, and it's really just a collection of publisher tags. You could totally be right. I don't know for a fact, but it's um, I haven't spent that much time on Yahoo over the last couple of years. Uh, I'll skip ahead a little bit more and say 
In addition, advertisers gain direct access to this inventory and the server-to-server -server connections promise a frictionless exchange of high-quality CTV inventory. So I think basically they're just saying that, that Yahoo DSP has integrations with Freewell and Magnite that are slightly better than they used to be. Yeah. We kind of might guess. Thank you for playing. No, no, no. <laughs> I think I failed round one. Yeah, yeah, you know that was that was a tough one. That we started out. That was a really that was a that was like the boss level um, press release. I always love press releases that uh, are written in other languages. Yeah, exactly. I don't. And, you know, I used to work at Freewell, so these are my buddies who probably wrote it. So sorry to mock you on the air. It, mocking is a fun, sign of love. So I think we're out of time. So we're going to close this out. Um, Rich, thank you so much for being here. This is a great conversation. It's going to hopefully um, October is a little more calm because I don't know if I can take too many more months um, like September. This has been sort of nonstop news events, but hopefully we get an end to the SAG strike in October. So we eventually get some fresh content back on the air and into theaters. Hopefully. Well, uh, stay tuned for our new segment, Justify Your Existence with Octane 11 um, coming right up. Rich, thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Marketectures Justify Your Existence, where we ask early stage ad tech and martech startups to tell us why we should care about what they are building. Today, we have Dan Rosenberg from Octane 11. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Ari. Great to be on. Quick disclosure, I am a small investor in Octane 11, so, but I'm not going to take it easy on you. <laughs> small disclosure for me, I usually listen to your podcast at one and a half X speed, so uh, I'll try to slow down a little bit. Yeah, that's generally how I listen to things too. Um, so tell me about the company in terms of you know size of the company, when it was founded, where it's based, money raised. Yeah. So Octane 11 is based in New York City. That's where I'm from. That's where I'm right now. And we're a remote first company, actually, though, started during the pandemic. So while New York City is our headquarters, we've got people around the US. Our next largest geography is actually Spain, uh, where they have a great tech scene and you know really strong talent. Um, anyway, we have 16 people full-time at this point. Um, mostly tech and product with a real focus on data engineers. We raised $4.5 million seed round last June that was led by Javelin Venture Partners in San Francisco with participation from other firms like BDMI, Plug and Play, Circadian, Honeystone, Base Ventures, Hampton, and of course, Aperium Ventures, which is our very first uh, investor back when we started. Right. So Eric's also an investor, just to add to yeah. the disclosures. Uh, four and a half is a nice size seed round. So what, what did they invest in you? What, what do you do? Yeah, it's actually a pretty simple concept. It's kind of like those financial management tools like Mint or Truebill, but for B2B CMOs. We connect up all your paid, owned, and earned marketing platforms, map all the activity to target accounts, and then match all that up to revenue data in your sales CRM to give you that holistic view of marketing performance. You calculate all your KPIs like row ads across all the channels. And here's the best part. We compare your results to industry benchmarks. So you know where you stand and we make specific recommendations on where you can save money and improve performance. Okay. So that's super interesting. So is it a budgeting tool or an attribution tool or both? It's a little bit of both. I mean, it's like, I mean, look, it's a tool that I wish I had when I was CMO. I mean, you're using like 20 different tools. You're using email, Google search, Google ads, LinkedIn ads, LinkedIn social, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, chatbots, ABM ads, webinar tools, Bing search content syndication, live events, I mean, everything. And there's just no way, like really good way to see it all together, how it maps to accounts and how it maps to revenue in one holistic view. So are you pulling in just the financial information, like how much I spent um, for a given campaign by geography, things like that? Or is are the outputs, the clicks, conversions, and other oh, everything coming in? It's all that. It's, it's the spend. It's the impressions, which is you know reach, engagement, clicks, likes, shares, downloads, everything mapped to accounts, your target accounts that the sales team asks you to target. And then that's mapped to the sales CRM. So you've got all the revenue data, like pipeline stages and all that important stuff. And who's the target customer? B2B CMOs. I mean, 100% B2B CMOs. It's great across different industries. We've got clients across a wide range of industries from like fintech, transportation, healthcare, business services, and so on. Uh, but it's really for companies that are using a lot of these tools. So once you get to be like a 50 million in revenue and up, companies are literally, they're trying to build these crazy spreadsheets and dashboards and data stacks, and they're spending literally years and millions of dollars. And what they end up with is some custom data stack that's not scalable, it's hard to maintain, can't be compared, and putting CMOs on an island. So it's really just helping them get out of that. 
And when you say CMOs, are, are are you really limiting to that's the actual person logging in, or is there applicability to the rest of the marketing team? It matters first and foremost at the first step where somebody is looking at activity across all the channels. So that may be a head of digital, it may be like a head of demand gen, but ultimately for sure it's a CMO. And this is like, you know, a lot of times where CMOs are hearing about us and they're saying, hey, like asking their head of digital or head of demand gen or head of analytics to check it out. And you said B2B, is that because of the ABM aspects of it or is there applicable to B2C? It's really built around B2B. Um, and the main idea is that every engagement across every single touch point, while maybe you're not tracking it's an individual person, you need to know that it's someone who works at a specific company. And that's kind of like the Rosetta Stone that connects all the data across all the channels. Right, right. So revenue in B2B lags marketing significantly. You have very long cycles in many cases. So how does your tool kind of think about that? No, I mean, that's that's exactly why this is important because in a B2B sale, it can be months, it could be quarters, it could be a dozen people or more that need to be influenced. So you really need to build that mosaic of data around that whole group of buyers in that buying team to understand where that particular customer is at. Very different from B2C where you track an impression, a click all the way down to a shopping cart. And in B2B, Salesforce or the sales CRM is the shopping cart. Right. Uh, are there any customers you can name? Let's see. Yeah, I mean, we've got about 40 companies on the platform right now, but we're literally, I think I was mentioning before, like we're literally about to launch today a new product called the B2B Marketing Impact Audit, which is a very easy way to get on board. And we expect our number of clients are going to grow very fast. But some of the companies that are on, for example, like one company is actually an agency called Encore Digital. Um, you can see they got a little quote on our website. And what's been amazing for them is helping their clients to see the breadth of all the activities that they're supporting for them and how it all connects to actual business revenue. Gotcha. And uh, how does pricing work? Pricing is very simple. It's just a flat uh, fixed fee. And it's really just geared towards the numbers of integrations that you connect into the platform and the size of your business. One of the interesting things we did is we're not charging on impressions or like gigabytes or anything like that, because that's like, does the marketing team, those aren't metrics that they're really thinking about. So we're just thinking about how many different channels you want to get in and how big is your company. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great overview. Thank you for justifying your existence. Dan, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.